Our sermon today is taken from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. This is the word of God. Peter, an apostle, apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, two according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Thus says the Lord. Thank you, Ryan. Friends, let's pray one more time uh, before we start our sermon. Father, we pray that you send your spirit to illuminate our hearts, that we may understand the truths within it. For we might hear with ears and see with eyes, but yet, unless your spirit comes, we won't truly hear and truly see, no matter how well it's being presented. We're dependent upon you. We beg you of this now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so friends, we're done uh, with our previous series uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to be beginning a new series in the book of First and Second Peter. Now, this book is very different than Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a wisdom literature that Solomon wrote, or um, Kohelet, you know, we'll just stick with Solomon, wrote to God's people in the Old Testament in Israel, okay? And First and Second Peter are letters that uh, uh, Paul wrote, to Christians, God's people in the New Testament. So it's going to read a little bit less poetically and more propositionally, more statements rather than kind of the, the poetic feel that you get um, in Ecclesiastes. And in the introduction, I'm not going to cover too much about the context of the book and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to cover that in point number one. But for now, I will mention briefly what Peter is trying to do in this book. And it's this. He wants to give Christians who were at the time being highly persecuted a sense of peace. He wanted to encourage them. He wanted them to continue to live out their Christian identities in whatever culture is around them, and even if their culture rejects them and treats them as exiles for it. And, and he does this in, in two short uh, uh, verses here. Uh, he says a whole lot, and I had a hard time cutting it down really to a 35, 40-minute sermon, but the main thing that Peter is doing here is he's attempting to shape the worldview of these people and the loves that they have. The way Peter wants them to have peace is by shaping their worldview and their loves. Okay? In other words, um, Peter attempts to give them peace in the midst of persecution by realigning their minds to God's redemptive story and by molding their hearts to the hero of that story. See, the mistake that most people make when we talk about experiencing peace Right? We get so laser-focused on the actual feeling itself, on the actual emotion of peace. And let's say it this way. If peace is the fruit to grow and eventually enjoy, we often make the mistake of spending all our time focusing on the fruit. But any good gardener would know that in order to reap the fruit, what you need to pay most attention to is not the fruit itself, but the soil and the root of the tree. If it has the right kind of soil and its roots is placed well, the fruit will organically come. Peter is saying here, you want to enjoy the sweet fruit of peace in the midst of all the hardships that you're experiencing as a Christian in this world? Don't focus so much on the immediate fruit itself. What you want to do, what you want to do is look at the soil, look at the root. Mold the foundational soil of the tree and the root that it's in. Place your loves right in the right place. How does he do that, How does he do that in two verses? Let's get to it. There's three things I want to point out. One, he says, remember our names. Put this down here. Remember our names. Two, 
remember God's eternal love. Three, remember what it cost him, okay? These three things. Remember our names. Remember God's eternal love. Remember what it cost him. Let's start with point number one. Remember our names. Look at verse one. Peter starts here by introducing himself as the author. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's, let's stop there. He's saying a lot in just this one sentence. How so? Well, if you read the Gospels, okay, the story of uh, Jesus' life and ministry and death on earth and resurrection on earth, that, that uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you read the Gospels where Peter first showed up in the Bible, do you remember what his original name was? It wasn't Peter. The name that was given by his parents was actually Simon. But yet here, he chooses to introduce himself to these persecuted Christians, not as Simon, but as Peter. What's Peter trying to tell them? It's this, that he does not primarily identify himself with the name that the world gave him, not even the name that his parents gave him. His sense of self is not ultimately derived from his own culture or even his own family. Now, our modern ears and our postmodern ears would hear this and we'd, we'd champion it. <laughs> Right? would say, you know, good for you, Peter. You know, don't, don't let the world tell you who you are. Right? You determine for yourself who you are. Why? Because the championed narrative in the modern or postmodern era is that self-definition should originate from within us. Right? Ginny uh, Romani, the, the CEO of IBM, recently was interviewed by Forbes, and she said, you know, only, only you define who you are. You do that. You know, find your identity within yourselves. Don't let the world name you. See, you name yourself. Okay, so why does our culture do that? Well, a lot of reasons. I think a lot of, a lot of why we are so scared about letting our culture or the world name us is because we're tired. The world is subjective. You know, their opinion of you, they're really influenced by their subjectivities. The world's love for you is imperfect. You've experienced that. Their opinion of you is inconsistent and ever-changing. So I agree, you shouldn't let the world define you, but I'm not sure if the answer is therefore for us to define ourselves either. Why not? Well, because of many of the same reasons. Let's, let's think about ourselves with an honest lens for a second. We call the world an unsafe place to draw our name from because they're subjective and therefore inaccurate. But can we really claim to be objective about ourselves at all times? Are we always accurate in how we view ourselves? Don't we at times catch ourselves being a little bit self-conceited, but then also in other times unnecessarily self-demeaning? You're telling me you never experienced that roller coaster? I do every day. We call the world an unsafe place to draw name from because their love for us is imperfect, but can we say that we've successfully loved ourselves perfectly? We say the world's opinion of us is always swinging and changing, but is our opinion of ourselves consistent? Have we ever woken up with such confidence but then totally get deflated by one silly comment where the person didn't even really mean what you thought they meant anyways? <laughs> See, yeah, the world is a risky place to draw our name from, but I'm not convinced that our inner self is much safer. Peter here is promoting neither. Think about his story again in the Gospels. Who gave Peter the name Peter? Not his parents, not his friends, not even himself. It was Jesus. John 1.42, you are Simon. You shall be called Peter, which means rock. So with this 
one short opening intro, Peter is already making a profound statement. He's telling these persecuted Christians, remember where I get my name from. Remember who I belong to. Not to this culture. Not even to my family. Not even to myself. I belong to Jesus. And such is the case for you. He continues in verse 1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These regions uh, are, are located in now what is called modern Turkey. Okay, back then it wasn't yet Turkey. It wasn't one country with one culture. It was many regions under the Roman colony, okay, consisting of various languages, cultures, worldviews, religions. And you know what Peter's doing here is he's telling them, whether you're a Roman from Pontus or a Greek from Galatia or a Jew from Cappadocia or a Gentile from Asia, whether you're an American, Indonesian, Chinese, Indonesian living in Jakarta, whatever worldview or culture that your worldview presents, if you're a Christian, there is one worldview. There is one truth that transcends all of these cultures, and that's you belong to Jesus, not the place that you live in. That's why you feel like an exile, don't you? That's why you don't feel like totally at home. In a brief history, when Peter wrote this letter in this region, there was a lot of persecution against Christians, okay, uh, by, by the Roman emperor Nero. Nero, now here's the thing, he never made it illegal to be a Christian, much like how it is in Indonesia currently, it's legal, but yet Nero managed to create the culture in such a way that encouraged the casting aside of Christians, right? They're economically disadvantaged, discriminated against, he hated them. And yes, the persecution became a lot worse years after this letter was written, but still at this point when it was written, they're persecuted pretty intensely. And we may not experience it as intensely today, but it's still there, right? In the rural levels where village laws still prevail, real physical persecution might happen. In the government level, it's much harder to be a high-ranking official. And see, there's never an official law against it. It's not that. But it's the unspoken reality. It's the loud silence. You see? Some of you know that I came from a Muslim background, and my relationship with my family from my father's side has been a little bit awkward. Uh, they acknowledge the awkwardness, and it's no public secret, and we both still love and care for each other, so I'm, not, I'm comfortable sharing this, because they would be okay with it too. But I remember that the first time I visited uh, my dad's house after receiving Christ. I tried to be extra sensitive, you know, because I realized that the, 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 the tension there. And I came back during college and I came and, you know, we sat down, we talked and we laughed and, you know, had a meal. Everything was going as normal. But then the call to worship happened, like Azan. And then the conversation stopped and everybody got up and they walked to the uh, room to pray. But there's something different. This time, I stayed seating down. I didn't stand up. I didn't go with them. You see, I was trying really hard to not be offensive, but even by just not saying anything, I'm already saying so much. And, and my, my dad's a kind man, you know, thank goodness. He, he's, a, he's one of the kindest men you probably ever meet. And there's no ill intent between us, but there are people from that side of the family who do believe that I've cursed my father to hell because I've converted, and it's my fault that he's experiencing that, and I feel it. I feel the loud silence. And in many cases, that loud silence doesn't really practically affect 
our lives. Like that doesn't really practically affect my life in a pragmatic way, emotionally, I guess. But but sometimes for some of us and stories out there, you know it does. If if um, uh, the academic, much of the academic world, they'll think of you to be foolish for believing what you do. Much of the modern world will find you to be outdated. Much of the business world will treat your values as naive and idealistic. Much of the general dating world wouldn't know what to do with your dating convictions. And now you might think, you know, see, that's just divisive. You know, this whole worldview of not ultimately belonging to a culture, but to this Jesus Christ, that doesn't help anybody. You know, you can't contribute toward the advancement of culture if you make yourself distinct from culture like that. Well, let me remind us that in many cases, various cultures have flourished precisely because the Christians there remained distinct against the culture of the time. Who was the driving force behind the abolition of slavery? William Wilberforce in the UK, who was introduced to the gospel by his aunt and came to know the Lord later in life after college. In a famous quote by him, he said, God Almighty has set before me two great objectives, the suppression of, of the slave trade and the reformation of morals. And that drove him to a career in parliament. He made speeches there and, 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 and really pushed towards an abolishing of, of, of the slave trade. And all of England was against him at the time. He was socially exiled in many ways. He was, he was pushed back. But why did he do it? Because his worldview of Genesis 1 and 2, that all men are created equal in the image of God, made him distinct. And thanks to him, now we see the fruits of it today. This one's interesting. You know how the gladiator games ended? You know the Roman games where the slaves were publicly murdered for entertainment oftentimes in the gladiator arenas? It ended because one day a Christian monk named Telemachus, I think that's how you pronounce his name, Telemachus literally jumped in the middle of a gladiator fight in front of tens and thousands of people and he shouted this, don't do this, don't kill each other, it's murder. The crowd was so angry, they stoned him to death right then and there. But surprisingly, the emperor at the time, Honorius, felt so convicted by Telemachus' words, he ended the gladiator games, and since then it's been illegal. William Carey, missionary to India that many of you probably know of, when he got there, he pushed for all kinds of moral reform, and he was hated by the people because of it. He worked to ban a practice called sati. Sati is where widows would be burned alive at the husband's funeral often forced against their will. He said, yeah, no. <laughs> he pushed for medical treatment for lepers who were considered spiritually dirty. He pushed to end the caste system that inherently values people based on their family of birth. And he was hated for it. Last one. Interesting one. Chiyone Sugihara, a Japanese man that lived in World War II, became a Christian at a young age, and later in life, he worked for the Japanese foreign minister and was stationed in Kaunas, Lithuania. And at the time, there were thousands of Jewish refugees trying to flee the place, chased by Nazis, and many of them were literally banging on the Japanese embassy gates to get a visa. And the Japanese government said, no, you can't give them visas unless they have another visa out of Japan because they're also just going to stay here forever. But Chiyune's worldview caused him to go against the whole Japanese government. And he ended up giving 10,000 visas in the span of three or four months. He was eventually caught, cruelly imprisoned in Japan, and was never allowed to work anywhere else after that. And he spent the remaining of his life selling light bulbs from door to door to make money.
You see, William Wilberforce, who held his distinct Christian values, caused him to be distinct from the British culture at the time, and that didn't hurt the culture. Because he held to his distinctive, that caused the culture to be refined and flourished. What good is salt if it loses its saltiness, Jesus said. Remember who you are. Peter is calling these Christians. So was the case for Telemachus in Rome, William Carey in India, Chiyune Sugihara in Japan. Why? Why were they driven to do that? Because they know who they were. Peter is calling these Christians, you're not Pontians, you're not Galatians, you're not Cappadocians, you're not Asians, you're not Bithynians, you're Christians. Remember who named you. Remember who you belong to. That's why you don't fully feel at home here. And by the way, remember me also. I'm not Simon. I'm Peter. Now, Okay, I can see how reminding these Christians of this worldview of belonging to Jesus will kind of, you know, pump them up uh, to, 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 to grit their teeth and persevere against persecution, right, a little bit longer. But, you know, when does the peace part come in, right? Peter ended this with, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Gritting your teeth in obedience, that's good. But to be honest, it's different than having the feeling of peace, okay? So where does that come in? Well, let's go to verse 2 in our second point. Remember God's eternal love. See, what Peter did in verse 2 is remind them of God's love. But what Peter was interested in doing also is more than just reminding them of God's love, but to tell them that there's a connection. There's a connection between their exilic pains in verse 1 and the love of God described in verse 2. Let's take a closer look. You are exiles, Peter says in verse 1. But then how does he open up verse 2? You are exiles according to... You are exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Okay, what is all that? What is all that? By the way, this, this verse, all that he was saying in verse 2 is he's trying to describe the redemptive saving plan of the triune God. Peter is saying you're exiles according to the redemptive love of the triune God. Hmm, okay, I don't, I don't see the connection. Okay, let's, let's talk about it. Let's first focus on verse 2. Let's talk about the nature of God's redemptive love. Okay, then we're going to see later how that connects to the exilic pains that they're experiencing in verse 1. Notice, God's redemptive love is broken down in detail to the role of each person within the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, first, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God the Father, in other words plan the Christian salvation beforehand. The word here is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And it's not like as if God the Father merely knew beforehand who was going to accept Jesus. It's not just head knowledge, okay? To know someone in the Bible is often not just a matter of having information about the person. God wasn't lacking information, okay, that he finally knew. No. In the Bible, uh, for example, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, when it says that Adam knew his wife and she conceived, that didn't mean that Adam learned a few more things about Eve and then she got pregnant. Okay? Knowing her there is referring to an intimate love connection. In this case, yes, obviously, it's sexual intercourse. Now, of course, it doesn't mean exactly that when it's used to describe God foreknowing his people, but neither is it just head information. For God to foreknow you means that there is a love affair. 
There's a love affair that God the Father has had for you from long before. In other words, if you're a Christian today, Bible says the reason why that's the case is because the Father has loved you before the beginning of time. Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 4, just taking a few out of the many I could uh, 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 to proof text this. Ephesians 1, 3 to 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. I don't know how else to read that. Romans 9, 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Now, why does this doctrine sometimes not sit well with us? And, and, and I agree, some, it doesn't, because it creates a problem in our minds, right? It does, such as it makes God seem unjust and it makes God seem unloving because if he just chooses to save some, that means he also chose not to save others. So that's a problem, right? God is seemingly unloving or unjust. So we say, surely it's not that. Surely foreknowing here just doesn't mean him picking and choosing. It just means foreknowing that he has head information about who receives him and who doesn't. But you see, when you do that, the problem that you set out to solve still remains. You haven't solved the problem yet. If we go that route, and we say, God merely just knew who was, going, who was going to receive him. At the end of the day, he still knew that some weren't going to receive him. And although he could have saved them, he still chose not to save them. See, that's still a choice made at the end of the day. So even if we do these biblical gymnastics and say that uh, foreknowledge and predestination and all this stuff only remains to God's head knowledge, you, you still end up with the same problem you still end up with a God that could have saved but decided not to. It doesn't solve it. And then you say, okay, well, you know, it's because God doesn't want to interfere or violate our free choice, right? He doesn't, he doesn't want to violate that. But what's the big deal if he does? I've heard a preacher describe it in this way. You know, if we're all blindfolded, okay, and we can't see, and we're all headed straight to hell, okay? And God shouts, you know, stop, stop, turn back. And we say, no, you know, we're blindfolded. We can't see. We say, you know, it's fine, God. And God says, no, 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 you got to stop. You got to turn around. And we say, no, it's fine. You know, we're all heading to the beach. You know, I can feel it getting warmer. <laughs> if that's the case, which it is, right? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53, all of us, not, not some, all of us have all turned away like sheep and we've gone our own way. If that's the case, then by all means, violate my free choice. Take it away. <laughs> Grab me back to you. It'd be unloving for you not to. And plus, the doctrine of predestination doesn't say God violates our free will in that sense. All he does is takes the blindfold off so that we can see what's going on. And now with eyes that truly see, we'd be excited and, and freely running back to him. Okay, I'll stop there. There's more to talk about there. If you have questions, we can talk about it. But let's move on in the passage. Okay, okay, how does God then take the blindfold off? How does he renew our hearts? How does he change our hearts, which is the next part of the verse? by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. To be sanctified means 
to be set apart, okay? To be set apart for, for his own use. And stick with me here. I'm going to do a little bit of um, uh, go, uh, outline of the Bible. When the Holy Spirit resides on something in the Bible, that thing, which is at first ordinary and common, all of a sudden becomes set apart, sanctified for holy use. For example, you guys know the story of Moses, right? Doing all kinds of stuff with his staff, with his stick. Why did it, why was that stick, became, why did it become something that was utilized by God for special use? Not because Moses got it from some special hidden tree wood somewhere. It's a normal stick. But it's because the Holy Spirit came upon it. Let me read you Isaiah 63 verse 12. Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them? The only reason why this stick was set apart for holy use is because the Holy Spirit came upon it, okay? Another example, the Holy of Holies. In the Old Testament, you know that one room that you can't get into because God's presence resides there. It's a special room set aside for, for holy use. What made it special? Was there some hidden you know, tent material, the desert that they found that made? No, it was a normal tent. It was a normal room. The reason why it was set apart for holy use is because the Holy Spirit resided there. Mount Sinai, it's a normal mountain. But then all of a sudden, it became this holy mountain where if you touch it, you know, you, you, you got to take your feet off and all these rules. Why? Because the Holy Spirit came upon it. Another last interesting one, Mary's womb. Why was Jesus, the Son of God, incarnate, conceived within it? Did she have some kind of super womb in its own right? No, it was a normal womb. Let me read you John 1.35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The only reason why that's the case because the Holy Spirit came upon it. So why did you, friends, receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Why were you able to truly see? Why is it that your heart was excited and lured towards Christ and his cross? Is it because you're just more humble than the average person? Is it because you're just more spiritual than the average person? No, remember, Romans 3.23, all have sinned. Isaiah 53, we've all turned away our own way. Why? It's because the Holy Spirit came upon you and set you apart for holy use. What do you think Jesus meant in John chapter 3, verse 5, when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Look, the reason why I'm going at lengths to explain this isn't because I have the microphone and I want to win theological debates, okay? That's so petty. That's not the reason. My hope is that you would grasp the depths of God's love. So I have this thing now with Elena, my oldest daughter, where I ask her, um, Elena, does daddy love you small or big, you know? And she would go, big. And, and oftentimes, before, you know, after we play or before bedtime or before I go to work, I would look at her and say, Elena, I love you big. And on a lucky day, you know, she'd say, I love you big too, Daddy. But often I don't get that. <laughs> That's okay. When Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3, I want you to grasp the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of God for you. 
he wasn't just merely talking about the cross. He was talking about this eternal love that the triune God has set upon you. We've been running away our whole lives. There is nothing about us that should cause him to want us. But yet God has set his affections and foreknown a people who do not deserve him. And this affection that he has set upon you before the foundations of the earth has caused him to come himself into our hearts through his spirit and set us apart, opened our blindfolds and grabbed us from himself. This love is broad because no matter where you run, if he has foreknown you and if he has set his heart upon you, there is no corner of this wretched world that is too dark or dirty for him to stoop to to find you. This love is high because it was a top-down love affair, not a bottom-up that we had for him first. This love is deep because it's based on his eternal vow to us and not our fluctuating commitments to him. And this love is long, for there is no point in time in which God will lose his affections for you. Why? Because he began to love you before the concept of time even existed. He loves you big. Does this make us prideful? No, of course not. It's the opposite. We have no room to boast now. Because ultimately, it's not us that chose him. He chose us. The Christian can never say to those who aren't in heaven, well, yeah, it's your fault. You should have chosen him like I did. We have no room for that. The banner of our salvation is not filled with the statement, I chose him. It's filled with the question, why me? And immediately answered as the hymn does, I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Now let's go back to the passage. How does this give these persecuted Christians peace? How does this connect to their exilic pains? Well, take a look one more time at verse 1. How did Peter describe them? Not just as exiles, but as what? As elect exiles. Elect exiles. You see how this connects to verse 2? In other words, it's a whole package, you see. Before the foundations of the earth, God the Father made a prehistoric love vow and has elected to foreknow a people to be sanctified and set apart by his Holy Spirit. And as a consequence of that, yes, this eternal love has set them apart for the rest of the world, but also this eternal love has set them apart from the rest of the world. And it's opened their blindfolds. But remember, they're still living in this world, in a world that like them before Christ, have strayed and are straying as sheep that's gone its own way. You've been set apart, but you've been set apart. So of course you don't feel at home. You see? Of course you feel like exiles. You see the connection Peter's trying to make? The reason why you're experiencing exilic pains is not because God hates you. The reason why is because he's loved you with an everlasting love and that he has set you apart from this world for himself. That's why you're experiencing these exilic pains of not feeling fully at home. And I know it's frustrating, these pains. It's, it's annoying and it's painful. But deep inside, during these times of exilic pain, remember this worldview 
and hear his voice that echoes above all the loud silences that you might receive from the world. Hear his voice echoing above every penny or rupiah you lose because you make business deals according to your worldview. Echoing above every career ladder you decide not to climb because the means to do so goes against your heavenly father's will. Let it, let it echo above every weird look you get because of your old-fashioned dating convictions. Let it echo above every rock thrown Telemachus's way. It echoes above every light bulb Chione Sugihara had to sell to survive. It echoes above every insult William Wilberforce had to endure. And it echoed above every second I had to sit there alone in my dad's living room. The reason why this is happening, God is telling us from this passage, is because I've loved you and because I've set you apart. Your exilic pains is not evidence that I hate you, but it's evidence that I love you big. This is how your peace will not be subtracted during exilic pains, nor will it just kind of remain during exilic pains, but it can actually multiply in the midst of exilic pains because that's what your exilic pains remind you of, his big love. But Peter's not done yet. He reminds them of one more thing. Point three, remember what it cost him. You know, these concepts and languages, elect people, set apart, dispersion, you know, exiles, living as if they have no home, that should remind us of something, these phrases. It's phrases that God used to describe his people in the Old Testament. Remember the Israelites, who were for the most part sojourners, right? And Peter intentionally chose to use such language in describing Christians today because that's who we really are. We're sojourners. We're wandering from one land to another in constant exile. But those phrases aren't the only Old Testament phrases that he chooses to use. Look at the end of verse 2. He chooses to use another phrase, an Old Testament phrase, sprinkling with blood. Where is this in the Old Testament? Well, if you remember in the Old Testament, before God's people can approach him in the temple, God would always command them to kill an animal first and sprinkle themselves with the animal's blood. Why? Because they are sinful. They can't approach a holy God with sin, right? So the animal sacrifice represents the washing of their sins, represented the filth of their sin being put unto another. And now through its blood, they can be counted as clean and they can approach God. But when Peter uses the word sprinkling here, he wasn't talking about animal sacrifices, was he? Who was he talking about? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Do you see what Peter's saying? He's saying that when God made a prehistoric love vow to love you, he knew it come with a price. He knew that in order to love you and bring you unto him, he knew that in order for him to send his spirit to set you apart, your sins must first be put unto another, but not just an animal. Those animals in the Old Testament didn't really take away sins. Let me read you Hebrews 4, chapter 10, verse 4 to 5. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, so what's the point then? What's the answer? Who, who do these bulls and goats point to? Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. A body you have prepared for me. What was the eternal plan of love that God the Father had for you? 
not just that one day he's going to send the Spirit to set you apart for himself, but that one day God the Son will put on flesh and blood and become the sacrificial substitute that would make you clean. In other words, when he vowed to love you, he also vowed to die for you. He vowed to come into our world and be rejected by the culture he came to and be crucified for you and me who often choose the world instead of him. You know, perhaps the reason why we haven't experienced exilic pains isn't because we haven't been confronted by it, but it's because every time we are confronted by it, we choose the world instead of God. But yet still, God the Father in his great mercy has set his affections upon us by sending his spirit into our hearts and by sending his son unto a cross. Let this eternal love root itself deeply in your hearts. Let this worldview be the solid ground upon which you stand. It'll empower you to remain distinct and love your culture and have peace even when it costs you for the sake of its flourishing and for the glory of the one and only triune God who's loved you with an everlasting love. Let's pray. Father, help us comprehend just how wide and long and high and deep your love is. It's a love foreign to finite creatures like us who are stuck to reason within time and space. But yet you, an eternal being, who is above all that, also has a love for us that is above. Thank you, Father, that not only have you loved us with an everlasting love that's caused you to set us apart through the work of your Spirit, but also it's caused you to send your Son to die on the cross willingly for our sins so that we now through the Spirit's work, may have our eyes opened and see the cross and truly, not just externally, behave like Christians, but truly run our souls toward you, washed clean by the blood of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.